0: Hi, and welcome to the first episode of the AMPS podcast. I'm Owen Peters.
1: And I'm Owen Shirley. And um, we're currently getting our
0: sea legs on a
1: slightly wobbly jetty on the western edge of Bristol's floating harbour. Hopefully you'll have just listened to the sound of one of the harbour ferries pootling off into the distance, and some sea cadets doing whatever sea cadets do. Um, Owen,
0: do you want to explain the recording setup? Yeah, so we're recording all of this into an A-format, Tetra mic. It's an ambisonic mic, so it should hopefully make some interesting stereo background ambience uh, while we introduce the rest of the show. And uh, we've come here
1: to talk about the first, very first episode of the podcast featuring um, an interview with Peter Albrickson carried out uh, by AMPS member Enos de and they met to discuss the film The Cave.
0: Yeah, absolutely, which we also saw um, very recently. Uh, It's a really interesting documentary on a very relevant and timely subject. Uh, There's some really interesting sound work done as part of a Dolby Atmos mix. So hopefully this podcast will give you some real insights into their process on the sound and um, something interesting to take in with you if you haven't seen the film already.
1: Yeah. And this is a film that's just been nominated for Best Documentary Feature.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's an Oscar nominated film now. So um, (coughs) best of luck to it for uh, Peter and the whole team.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and really for our first ever podcast to get someone like Peter is a bit of a coup, I think.
0: Yeah, so absolutely.
1: it's a fascinating interview um, and we're very grateful to Enos and Peter for their time. Yeah, so over to you Enos.
2: Welcome to the very first episode of the Amps podcast. For our first episode, we have been lucky enough to get to chat to uh, supervising sound editor and sound designer Peter Albregsen from Denmark. Peter is a Danish supervising sound editor and sound designer based in Copenhagen, working on both feature films and documentaries. Uh, He's worked on feature films such as The Idealist, Thelma, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, Dunkirk, as well as documentaries such as Generation Wealth, Bill Nye the Science Guy, and most recently The Cave. Peter invited me recently to the UK premiere of the film, so I got to see it on the big screen ahead of talking to Peter about his work on the film. Hello Peter.
3: Hello, thank
2: you for having me. It's great to have you here as our first ever interviewee on an AMPS uh, podcast. Yeah, that's quite an honor. Can you give a brief introduction of yourself to all the AMPS members that might be listening?
3: Yeah, my name is uh, Peter Albregson. I'm uh, a sound designer from uh, Copenhagen, Denmark. I've been uh, working both on fiction film and documentaries. And um, I mean, it's like 18 years ago, I graduated from the Danish film school and it's been... Uh, an interesting time to be part of the Danish film community because I really love like going back and forth between doing documentaries and feature films and for me they really inspire each other. The whole documentary part of Danish film culture has really been thriving so whereas in other countries there's sometimes kind of like borderline between the fiction film and the documentary film like sometimes sound people only get to do documentaries and don't do fiction films, whereas in Denmark, they are really equals. And there are so many directors who really want to work very visually and sonically interesting with documentaries. And it's it's really been a very interesting development to be part of during these years. So yeah, just this year, I mean, I kind of went back and forth between doing The Cave, which is a documentary, of course, and then doing Valhalla, which is kind of like a big adventure. I mean, I feel very fortunate and privileged to do that because it's, It's for me, there's so much to get inspired by. Also, when I watch a lot of films, I'm I'm really like a film buff. That was what originally kind of turned me on to do this. So Yeah, like many of us. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I'm just watching so many films and I love watching a movie by Robert Bresson one moment and then watching uh, Die Hard the next moment. I mean, just that kind of variety. I love that when watching movies myself. So for me, being able to work that way and being allowed to do those kind of uh, very different movies is really amazing
2: absolutely i think uh, that's one of the beautiful things about cinema is you know you have fiction documentary um, and within these you have all sorts of different subgenres and um, sort of subcategories and there's no such thing as a better or worse type of film they all connect with the audience that they do connect with And that's, I think, a beautiful thing.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the processes can inspire each other. I mean, we're going to talk much more about this regarding the cave, but the cave was like the way we structured the process was that we really went back and forth between picture editing and sound editing all the time, which we also did on Valhalla. uh, Because on a CGI heavy film, you just can't cut the film without having some sounds. And on The Cave, the way the film is, you just couldn't cut the film properly without having some sounds.
2: So so that kind of... Sorry, can you just introduce The Cave quickly before we carry on?
3: Yeah, The Cave is um, a feature-length documentary by Syrian director Firas Fayyad, who lives in Copenhagen. Uh, the film is about a Syrian underground hospital, where because of the bombings that are going on on the ground, they've built a hospital below ground and made a big, big kind of tunnel system where they have this hospital. And then the special thing about this hospital is that the leader there and the, many of the main doctors are women. The main character Which is quite is, unusual in Syria. For yeah, her. yeah, exactly. And uh, Firas Fayad had been filming there for a couple of years. So it's a long period of time that is boiled down to this one hour, 40 minutes. But uh, you follow the everyday life, which goes from, I mean, all these bombings and attacks from the Russians, but also the everyday life on the hospital and how you see them trying to cope with all these disasters and horrible human situations, but also trying to build up like an everyday life together. And uh, for example, you see them celebrating Amani Balua's 30th birthday. So... Yeah,
2: because the film takes place in the eastern Ghouta area of Syria, right, where the Russian bombing has been ongoing for for years and and people weren't able to leave the area. Yeah, exactly. One of the things I was really impacted by when I watched the film was, obviously, we focus uh, a lot on the physical aspects of people being injured by the bombing and being dragged into this uh, underground hospital and the way the hospital uh, people are dealing with, with them and saving lives and literally... Treating the, the wounds and the the wounded, but there's another side to this as well, where Doctor Armani Balur is seen to be sort of taking time out from the the chaos to talk to little traumatized kids and and adults who have been completely sometimes muted by the um, by the panic caused by these bombings, and she tries to sort of reengage them in, in conversation, try and reconnect them with some humanity, um, despite all the ongoing chaos that is. Um, taking place around them. A
3: very big, important thing for her and also for the film is this whole female perspective, like that she really wants, also when she visits uh, some of the people in the city, she very much goes into this whole thing about women having a voice in modern Syria and being allowed to have jobs and being allowed to be equals to men uh, because that is incredibly hard. And there's... uh, I mean from the very beginning of the film there's a man who says that he don't understand why Amani Balu is there because this yeah, is a, why she's in a managing position yeah, this, in this yeah, uh, hospital Yeah exactly
2: this is a job for men Exactly and she's uh, she's in yeah, charge of this exactly. uh, underground facility being a woman and uh, as if it wasn't hard work enough to be dealing with all the yeah. things she's dealing with, uh, she now also has to put up with the fact that people aren't happy of her being a woman in that position. It's pretty crazy. It was a
3: very important thing for Firas Fayyad, the director, because he comes from a family with a lot of women. He has uh, a lot of sisters. I think it's like six or seven sisters. So the whole female perspective was super important for him. And it was very important that that perspective also... Led into the way that we did the sound. Then at the same time, it also inspired me to think about okay, I mean, doing sound for movies is often so male dominated. Often, so I really wanted some women on the crew. So I I contacted Rana Eight uh, from Beirut, both because I had met her a few months before in Beirut at a sound workshop, and she did an amazing film uh, which she also directed called Panoptic which I've been meaning to watch that I haven't watched it yet but I heard really good things about it it's really brilliant and that's actually a lot of that it's taking place underground and because she also grew up in Beirut which is in this zone where she's I mean she really knew about this 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 war zone so for me, she was just like the perfect collaborator on a film like this. So uh, I contacted her quite early and to hear if she was interested in being part of the film, and she loved it. So she really jumped at the chance and did some great work. And then at the same time, uh, Lars Ginzel, uh, who was one of the re-recording mixers, but who also was taking care of all the dialogue, he was supervising the dialogue editing, he had uh, actually a Swedish dialogue editor, Theodor Flygt, as dialogue editor on the show. So, I mean, we the whole female perspective was very important for us and also to get that uh, to be part of the, the sound crew itself. I mean, Rana's work f- was so incredibly important to this film and just this thing about having Rana there who was just like me and also like Lars, we are all very much into this way of using sound, whether it's it's in the gray area between sound design and music. That was also something that I really loved about the work that I had heard Rana do, was that she approaches sound in a in the way you use music, like with textures and ambiences that often have tonal elements to it. And that was something that Firas Fayyad talked about from the very beginning, that he wanted it to be a very subjective soundscape and... Um, The film should be a subjective experience. You should feel how it feels to be there. And you shouldn't just like see the film and witness it from the outside. You should be on the inside. And I mean, there's several moments in the film where, because it's so much about these doctors being in these underground hospital corridors and hearing things going on on top of them. It's so much about listening and it's so much about their sensitivity.
2: One of the things that really stood out for me when watching the film was that because so much of it takes place underground and we don't see what's going on on the surface it's down to the sound to really do a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of conveying all that information as to what's happening in the surface and um, creating all the tension that the characters are going through. And because of the nature of the film and how it was shot in DSLRs and phones, you don't get these sort of big cinematic vistas and wide shots and um, cinematography that you'd get with a normal film camera. So I feel the sound on this film particularly has a bigger role um, in terms of bringing that cinematic feel to the project. Uh, but like you said as well, I really noticed how... Rather than just recreating the reality of what would be the sound in this underground hospital, it was more about creating the sound through the filters of the anxiety and the fear and the sort of stress and uh, adrenaline of the people there. So it was more about representing what the people are feeling or how they're perceiving what's going on as opposed to just the realism of it. That's one of the topics I wanted to talk about was in fiction features, we often do a lot of sweetened up sound, or we work with elements where we're trying to add unreal elements to the realism of the world we're designing for dramatic purposes. But with documentaries, often we think that you don't do that because you're trying to be 100% truthful. So I'd like to talk a bit about that gray area in between, or not even gray area, more about different schools of thought, in a way, in terms of uh, the use of sound in documentaries.
3: I think there's definitely become a, a shift in how sound is used in documentaries, because I think there's just generally an interest from filmmakers in using sound as a storytelling device. And it means that just as much time you spend on, on the photography and the editing, just as much time you spend on finding out, okay, how should this film sound? And um, in old school documentaries, it was very much about interviews and really the location sound and recording that as sharply as possible but that was it so that was what you used and uh, that can be really powerful and great Um, but something that I really love uh, nowadays in modern documentaries is that the filmmakers are interested in building a sonic experience as well and the thing is as we all know that when you put up a microphone especially if it's a microphone that's on a bad camera then or a bad microphone on a good camera then it just doesn't sound very good i mean it might be that it's recording what is there but it, the 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 way that it portrays that sound is often horrendous and on a film like the cave where the the practicals the practicalities for these photographers of shooting the film was so hard. And the they were just, I mean, all the sound comes from just the camera microphones. It just sounded really, really bad. I mean, it it doesn't sound...
2: Right. So basically there wasn't a, a
3: sound team on site. No, exactly. So no. The, the sound was being recorded
2: no. with the onboard camera mics in a way for, for most of it, right?
3: Yeah, exactly. So... I mean, there were also shots where you where they had been zooming in on someone and then the camera was like 10 meters away. And I mean, and then trying to create. Yeah, I mean, there's no magic button sound. for this kind of stuff. Uh,
2: I mean, obviously, this is a, a, an AMPS podcast and AMPS is a, a sound association heavily represented by people both in production and post-production sound. Um, so obviously, I would never recommend or even think of shooting a, a, a film without a sound team. But I guess in, in the case of this documentary, circumstance and logistics wouldn't even allow for, for that amount of people to, to be on site to shoot the film. Um, yeah.
3: I mean, I must say that, for example, whenever Lauren Greenfield does a documentary, who I did Generation Wealth and Queen of Versailles with, she really is very much into having good production sound. She always brings her own production sound mixer who records really great sound on the set. And it's amazing to work with that. But on the cave, that just wasn't possible. I mean, you couldn't get any more people in there and the equipment was the way the equipment was. I mean, that's just how the circumstances are. So we had to work from that. And uh, I mean, some of the production sound was so bad that just to be able to translate the sound before they started translate the dialogue, before they started editing, there were a couple of spots where we had to do a bit of cleanup before they... Even started picture editing, so I mean Lars Gensel started working on the on the dialogue also very early. We simply couldn't build or shape the sound of the film while the dialogue was so bad because there was it was so noisy and it was impossible to kind of see what we could do with the sound. So the cleanup of dialogue and my sound editing pretty much started on cut three, and we ended on cut
2: 8 that leads me nicely into the next question which was uh, I was wondering what point of the project did you get on board because um, I know the, the director's previous film Last Men of Aleppo was nominated for an Oscar last
3: year um, but you didn't work on that film uh, yourself right yeah I was actually supposed to do Aleppo but then had to the, there was scheduling conflicts and I couldn't make it work but um in that way, we were aware of each other. So Ferraz contacted me very early about the cave. He uh, We talked just before they started picture editing, and that was like 18 months or so. I mean, in the January 2018, and we mixed the film, we finished the mix in August, September 2019. So this was very early. Already from the very first conversation, Ferraz was saying, I want the sound to be really to be enveloping. I want this to be a subjective experience. I want us to mix in Dolby Atmos. He already like had a list of ideas for how different things should sound because he had been to one of these hospitals and he knew about how things sounded. And he he's so... Sound sensitive, so he also had talked with also Amani and the others about how they experienced the sonic part of the hospital. I mean, how does things sound to them? And for example, Amani had been talking about these stretchers that had been that was rolling in through the corridors. I mean, how they, for her, sounded like an earthquake and sounded like like hell on earth unfolding. Um,
2: yeah, li- these are literally carrying the wounded people. In so it's, that's kind of signalling for her. It's signalling a very different, different yeah. um, thing than the realism of that sound would do in, in another context.
3: Yeah. So there were all these kind of things that were very important for for us from the very beginning, and that was super helpful to me because it meant that I could make a list of things that I needed to record for them in the film, and I needed to get hold of. I mean, some of the things I couldn't record, of course, but then trying to get hold of the recordings of these sounds. Like, for example, uh, Ferraz knew exactly what kind of planes, what kind of uh, weapons. I mean, all these different aspects of the the soundscape, he had been thinking about that. I
2: noticed uh, when watching the credits for the film that there's quite a few people credited as sound effects... Recordist, and I think this feeds nicely into what you're talking about.
3: Exactly that that came. How from... important
2: do you find it is to get? I mean, we talked earlier about um, some modern documentary being quite um, subjective sometimes, and using sound in a way that enhances the drama or the emotional connection with the film, as opposed to just being realistic. But then on the other side, you do have the element of recreating the reality and trying to be as as realistic and respectful of the reality. So I imagine something like recording and capturing effects that are true to the region uh, and true to the objects and the actions that are taking place. Uh, it's pretty important. So how do you go about sourcing these kind of things from different parts of the world?
3: Um, it's exactly right that, I mean, I spend a lot of time on um, gathering material. And I do that both for feature films and for documentaries. And I I spend all this time just like researching on how does things sound from this region and getting hold of uh, different materials. So what I do is that... Nowadays, because of uh, social media like Facebook and Twitter and so on, it's suddenly become much easier to get hold of sound people from around the world. And it's, I mean, it's really amazing how helpful people are from like all around the globe to kind of help uh, get hold of sounds. And for example, I got hold of these sounds of the Russian jets that are flying above Um, and bombing and these sounds, I got some from some Russian recordists who had recorded exactly the jets that those, those type of planes that are in the film. And um, I, I, I was listening to the location recordings and could hear, okay, so this is how that machinery sound, the hospital machinery uh, that 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 has these sounds that was quite lo-fi, and then I got hold of um, actually a Finnish r- recordist who had recorded a lot of hospital sounds and those hospital. You mean, like sounds, the, the machinery
2: themselves and the beeps. Exactly the beeps and the and beeps like and like that. That, right. yeah, that because the that's user interface all, sounds in a way. Yeah, 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 but machines. but
3: they are all quite lo-fi in the cave because they they can't get hold of high-tech. Um, machinery. So it had to, I couldn't just go out to like a modern Copenhagen hospital and record their right, sounds yeah. it would, it because match it, what would, you're seeing, it, it seeing. would sound too high tech and it wouldn't, it wouldn't feel right. So in that regard, I really spent a lot of time on getting authentic material. Um, then on top of that, I knew that Firas talked a lot about this feeling of being in the cave and how things around you are like constantly rattling. Like it's a physical sonic experience, almost like being in the cave. So one thing is hearing the actual sound of bombings or jets on top, but the sound when they're, I mean, when things are so loud, then it makes material vibrate, which is quite amazing. And for me, that's that's when sound turns from being metaphysical into being physical. And I find that so fascinating. It's really... It's it's I mean we all know it from big big techno concerts or big rock concerts that you can almost get this physical impact of sound. So so I so then I heard about um, I was in, in in California working on another project and then uh, I met Nathan Moody um, who uh, who's had just I mean just by coincidence he mentioned yeah and uh, then just recently I I've been recording all these different. Vibrating materials where I used different uh, uh synth tones and so on to recreate like vibrating metal and so on, and I was like, whoa, you just recorded like the perfect sounds for the cave so um so i i, I got hold of that library of sounds as well and used that, Is that for... the um, metallotronics or something exactly like that. Yeah, yeah yeah i think yeah. yeah i've I've listened to those sounds as well amazing cool yeah, sounds. yeah yeah yeah. So so in that sense, it was really about, because I was so early, uh, uh, because I was a part of the project so early on, then I could really gather all these sounds for a long time. I mean, spend a year almost just collecting sounds. And that's also why there's so many uh, recordists uh, uh, credited, because um, I've, I've gathered so much material from so many different places. And... I really like
2: this uh, idea of um this underground network of, of sound designers or sound recordists around the world where you can access people It's really amazing and, and access places that you wouldn't yeah, yeah. be able to to access um if you had to go yourself. Uh, so it kind of opens up this whole sort of palette of sounds and, and exactly. availability. I mean
3: something something like this you wouldn't be able to do that twenty years ago. I mean, you gather so much material from around the world and also at the same time working with people around the world. So we had we had all these different people from around the world but also like Rana cutting in in Beirut uh uh Terador being in Sweden now and uh, uh uh Lars being in Berlin I was in Copenhagen I worked a lot with um, Mikkel Nilsson calls uh his uh, he's also called Sonic Salute. He, he's helping me on all my projects, like recording materials you guys and work cutting since quite a long time, as a yeah, as yeah, a, exactly. It's an amazing collaboration. And, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, And he he's he lives in another place here in Denmark. Then there's my Finnish Foley artist. Uh, Heike Kossi, who also did a big, big job on this film.
2: Yeah, we'll talk about the Foley specifically in a bit as
3: well. And then uh, the composer, Matthew Herbert, was in England. And then we finished the mix at Skywalker Sound in California. Uh, and I also I recorded some voiceover with Amani in Istanbul, actually. So I went to Turkey also to do some sound recordings and voice recordings. A truly
2: global sound team. It's, it's
3: really incredible. And I mean, that's also... So what I mean, like, you couldn't have done this 20 years ago. It wouldn't have been technically possible.
2: Yeah, I think technology these days allows us to do things that we never did before, whether that be capturing sounds or collecting sounds from recordists around the world who live in places where, where you're trying to get sounds from, or, or even in terms of putting a team together where you're not all physically in the same place or even the same country, uh, but
3: still working on the same project and collaborating in that way. Yeah, yeah. and then also, of course, uh, uh, both National Geographic and the Danish production company, Danish Documentary, has been extremely supportive and really supported the project. And, and uh, uh, given the financial means it takes to kind of do something like this, where you have a very long process of uh, sound editing and a very long mix, It's it's very rare that you're allowed to have these kind of this kind of budget and this kind of these kind of possibilities for doing uh documentary
2: especially yeah, especially in the documentary uh, world exactly uh, yeah yeah i just want to run through some of the, the main things of the film in terms of like breaking it down to the dialogue we've spoken a bit about the effects now and the um design side um but i want to go back into the dialogue editing and then going to foley from there we mentioned how this film was shot heavily with uh, either phones or dslr cameras Um, meaning that the sound captured on location wasn't always ideal. Um, So I imagine from a dialogue editing point of view, what was the process like on this in terms of like the work that had to be done in terms of cleaning was much heavier maybe than on other films. And then how did that affect your process in terms of working with the dialogue on this?
3: So uh, Lars uh, Ginzel, who's based in Berlin, uh, was supervising the dialogue. And I worked with Lars on, well... More than a handful of projects now. We've we've been collaborating closely on many films now. Usually he's the mixer and I'm the sound designer. But on this film, I wanted to have him included very early because I knew that I knew how bad the dialogue was sounding. The production sound was really terrible. So to make it make a proper workflow from the very beginning it was really important for me that he was a part of that. And it was interesting because the first cut that he started working on, then, I mean, it was, uh, I had done a a very few sound effects, but not much. That was in the beginning of 2019. Uh, And then he started up cleaning up dialogue and I started up doing sound effects. And when we, when we talked for the first time, I mean, he had done a few sequences, then uh, I could start. I needed his cleaned-up dialogue to be able to do some sound design because it was so noisy that there was no room really for any Absolutely. sounds. And you, you said as well that some
2: of these, some of this dialogue cleanup
3: was already happening during the picture
2: editorial as well, right? Because yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I mean, which, is, which it, is quite. I mean, it's quite
3: rare. The, the crazy thing was that there was a couple of scenes where we needed, where we did it before they translated it because they couldn't hear what was being said. So the translator so has to clean,
2: it, clean it up even to be able to understand what was being said.
3: Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
2: um, so, yeah, but, so I guess in that sense it makes sense. You know, a, a lot of when we talk about dialog editing, a lot of the, the sort of the cleanup side of it happens in the mix. So I guess in, in this in this case it made sense workflow wise to have the mixer be involved with the dialog edit from yeah day exactly one so that
3: we so that he could make decisions about how much to clean and I mean it really needed to. I mean, there needed to be done a lot of work. I mean, it was a lot of uh, cutting and isotoping and all these things that whatever could be done to kind of save this dialogue and make it more easy on the ear. Um, And then last, sent those things to me and then I could start working on sound design for those things. And then... I sent those back to Lars and it was interesting because Lars was like wow so that's the way you want to go with the sound because when you when you saw the film at that state where Lars started cleaning up the dialogue it felt much more like a reportage i mean it felt like like and it was very strong still i mean you would but it was more like you uh, was you would you were watching this happening and it was powerful but it was also like you were just sitting there watching a repertoire from this place. Whereas because what we did with sound was really like picking out certain things and making things more subjective and uh, using sound, using ambient sounds um, much more, uh, much stronger and uh, making a lot of decisions about what to hear and what not to hear. Um uh, things like that as soon as you started applying that to the material the whole focus shifted the whole, the whole way you perceived the the storytelling shifted and Lars was like wow so this is the way that you're we're heading with the with the sound design and that was very interesting to kind of hear also from him that we kind of moved from the k being a reportage film to it becoming a cinematic film uh, and um, and obviously, him, even though at this
2: stage he was sort of supervising the dialogue, um, he was going to be mixing it later on as well. So it was great for him to be part of that of that sort of uh,
3: journey of, of finding that voice for the, for the film as well. I guess exactly. It's also because when, as um the great thing about having Lars in so early was also that as a mixer. If you get in material that someone else has been kind of noise reducing, it can sometimes be like, "Oh, I, I want to go back and have a previous version or something like that quite often the the noise reduction side of things
2: people recommend to leave for the mixer to do on the mix stage when you have you know you can hear hear things properly in a bigger room, yeah, and that sort of stuff so uh, on a film like this where I, I imagine denoising in many forms was probably taking a much stronger role than in other films. Yeah, um, exactly. It's really such a different thing for it's such a good thing for the mixer himself to be involved. Yeah, so uh, that
3: really, was incredibly helpful because Lars could do all the things that he wanted to do. He did, he 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 did several passes on the whole film. So just kept on kind of, it kept on being more and more um, precise and more and more kind of cleaned up in in specific places. Whereas in the beginning, it was more of of getting kind of an overview of okay, how how does this, how can we make this uh, work and how will this sound when you clean it up? Uh, because when we started, it was still such a long way to go for the picture editing to finish. So doing dialogue uh, cleanup for something where you know that a lot of this will be changed it's also i mean it's 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 time consuming it's super time consuming to do these cleanups so it also had to kind of develop and develop and do a lot of conforming and going back and forth and um keeping up with the picture exactly picture changes and cuts. Yeah, yeah yeah so so what we did um uh i don't know just structurally working wise we did it so that Uh, Lars and I started on edit three, and then Irana got edit four, and she spent two weeks on cutting effects for kind of like a basic effect and ambience layer for the film. Um, But then when she stopped, then we were already on cut five, so then we... Have to conform what she had done into the next cut, and then building on that, and um, so it was uh, it was a process of like a constantly developing cut. But then the good thing was that because we then had done all these different sound things, then they could get these things in the picture editing, and I could talk with Ferraz about okay, can you make this scene longer or? Could we have another kind of scene right here so we could have more dynamics or um i think that's brilliant that's one of the things that often happens
2: with the film process is that too often people think of sound post-production as something that only happens post locking the edit in a way right um and there's there's so many opportunities lost from having that sort of structure sometimes i think especially on the sort of indie side of, of filmmaking quite often sometimes because of budget and schedules um it's not practical to be involved from that early on but uh, in the last couple of years even on my work I've started becoming involved with projects where I try and sort of be available even if it's early on in the picture edit yeah. having access to doing a quick one week blast at something and then sending stuff back to them and then and then being on another job for another month yeah. or two and yeah. then coming back even that week or those few days spent often I find is, is never time wasted uh, and the Exactly, Often these opportunities come for for suggesting for being part of the conversation in terms of yeah, yeah, how the sound yeah. can affect the edit as well. Yeah,
3: I do the same, and also sometimes just like doing one day here and one day at another spot and one day and a third time, like just if there's only like one specific spe, one specific scene that needs a bit of help or something. I mean, these things are super helpful to the cut, and it really meant that that um, on the cave that that the picture um, editing and the sound editing could really develop together. And a big thing of the sound being such an important part of the film is that the picture editing has allowed for that, so that for these scenes where they're listening, then when you started adding sounds in, then you could suddenly see, okay, we don't need to cut out here or this scene could be longer and longer and longer because it's quite strong just experiencing how they hear these sounds. So on the production sound, whenever they were reacting to sound, maybe sometimes there was like a little or just there was almost no sound. So as soon as we added in sounds for these moments, then suddenly it the whole scene came alive and the emotional um uh, reactions from the characters suddenly uh, made sense, and uh, that meant that a lot of scenes were prolonged to make room for sounds. Because yeah,
2: sound could do a lot of the heavy lifting in those cases, and and justify these longer longer periods of essentially no dialogue or no uh, direct action. Yeah, but just transmitting those these the, the the visual experience of of what the sound is making them feel.
3: Uh, yeah, and at, at the same that. time, then also sounds like these are quite abstract. I mean, you you hear something that, I mean, there's also a couple of scenes with one of the, with this cook, uh, who's also a nurse, who's like, she's like thinking, okay, is that a motorbike or is that a plane? Or I mean, she has all these things where, I mean, she's not exactly sure what she's hearing. And um, uh, the thing about abstract sounds like this are that they, are more difficult to explain and more difficult to categorize, and that's great because it makes the audience curious. But it also means that the audience needs time to kind of find out. Okay, what is going on? What is this sound? What? What? I mean, and th- because sound, abstract sound, sound effects needs it. It, it needs uh, time to kind of for the audience to kind of perceive what is going on. and so Especially
2: when it's not linked to picture as well, right? Yeah, exactly. Right? So yeah, in yeah, this yeah. case, but it's all sounds that's coming from above. Yeah, so exactly. So you're trying to decipher what these sounds are and then reacting accordingly, you know? If yeah. It's, is, is it a bomb or is it you know, approaching um, danger or is it just uh, yeah. something common? Uh, yeah, exactly. And I, I imagine, you know, in, when you're in a state of war, the people in the cave, their level of alertness and sort of fear or like in a way paranoia of sound-induced like paranoia is so high that any sound that happens kind of can can be a, a shock or a or 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 a fear inducing uh, thing so exactly you, you're constantly trying to interpret what you know what these sounds are, are yeah. and what how yeah. to react to them
3: yeah yeah so 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 there was really a lot of going back and forth like that, and um uh, especially like ferraz is super sensitive to sound also because he's been part of the war himself, he's experienced that. So he was also like, uh, he talked about traumatizing sounds that that for him, for example, the sounds of the planes were sounds that, I mean, hit him on a deep, deep emotional level and kind of brought out all the, the traumas that he had. So he wanted a sound that kind of went beyond just the sound of jets. It should be a sound that kind of... um yeah, it was like really going through bones and soul. And um, yeah, I mean
2: the opening sequence in in the film, I had the chance to watch this in, in a big cinema, and I mean when those sounds, the shrieking sounds of the planes and the and the bombs arrive, it's terrifying. Um, and I, I know you you've worked with heightened elements to make that feeling. And I think if you just went for a realistic use of sounds there, it wouldn't have had the same impact. Like I I've, I got the physical chills from hearing those sounds when they first happened. So instantly you're in this in this sort of fear that that um that they're they're in
3: yeah yeah Um, yeah exactly but it's also i mean the interesting thing was that when i heard these sounds of jets just on their own for the first time i thought that they were pretty chilling that they were really whoa they're really powerful and they're so loud i mean it's so it's like distortion like it's built into the sound because it's such a loud sound that the air is almost distorting. It, yeah, it's like r-
2: ripping. Yeah, ripping yeah, the exactly. Air, yeah, almost, yeah. almost
3: like a ripped speaker, but, but yeah. in actual air. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so, so when I heard those sounds, I thought, "Whoa, this is really crazy." And then, then Ferraz heard them, and he was like, "Yeah, those are good, but they should be even more evil." Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, of so,
2: course, what, when you're hearing stuff in the context of actually being in danger of being affected by the bombs they're dropping. Then you know the sound that they actually make is being amplified by this filter of you know fear and and stress and and adrenaline. Exactly. So the memory of of the perceived sound is probably so much stronger than you could ever create with a natural recording. Yeah. So in a way, by designing these things, you get to reach the same level of power in sound that they perceived on the day. Yeah. So which for so, me is a, is a justification for this type of sound use in documentary, exactly.
3: Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, uh, the you. Uh, you're trying to recreate an emotional reality i mean and and that's that's something that I often talk about like in in documentaries is emotional authenticity for me that's really important that that I build the soundscapes on on sounds that are, are based on sounds from the locations from the places um but then I build on that to create something that feels emotionally right and sometimes that to make it emotionally right it can be subtle and very realistic sometimes to make it emotionally right it has to be very physical and intense and um and a more subjective sound so for me it's always about like really creating the sound that is emotionally authentic and it's it was really interesting that samaha this um this the nurse and the cook who i mentioned earlier she watched the film uh, just recently and said afterwards this is exactly how it sounds in the cave and i just thought wow that's an amazing such an, an amazing uh, Compliment because for me, that was exactly what we were aiming for to exactly. recreate. But, this. And,
2: and in a way, I think also, like, you know, you talk about authenticity when you talk about documentaries, but in a way, like, by introducing sound techniques that we use in, in fiction film, we can reintroduce authenticity that wasn't captured with the camera, that is the emotional authenticity that you, you talk about, you know, that uh, in a way that is more authentic than you're basically reintroducing what was lost through the camera lens, which wasn't isn't there. Exactly. sound. In yeah, a yeah. So it's, yeah. it's sort of like you're taking you you're cheating. You're just actually making it more truthful in a in a certain way. Yeah. That's what, that's how I feel. Yeah.
0: So that's the end of part one of uh, this talk between Peter and Enos. Uh, we hope you're really enjoying it so far. Um, I just want to take the opportunity to thank both of them for uh, all the hard work in making this interview happen and all of the insights. There is a part two which will be available shortly in which Peter will go into more detail about the specific post-sound elements that help to make the soundtrack what it is, particularly uh, Foley, a lot of Foley work that was uh, added to this film, and also the advantages of mixing in Dolby Atmos, um, using that sonic space to create a more immersive experience really put us in the world of uh, the figures in the cave.
1: Yeah, and... um... As Owen said, we're very grateful to both Enos and Peter for their time in, in carrying out such an interesting discussion. You can follow both of those guys on Twitter. They're both really interesting people, always posting up interesting stuff for anyone who's involved in sound or wants to get involved in sound. Um, you can also now follow our podcast. We're on the Amps Podcast on Twitter. We also have an email address, at ampspodcast.gmail.com. So, you know, give us a shout, drop us a line if... Uh, if anyone's got any ideas for an episode they'd like to hear or if they'd like to collaborate in any way. And for those of you who might be interested in joining AMPS as a member, uh, the membership is open to those working in sign for film, TV and games, as well as students who intend to make it their profession. And for more information about AMPS and how you can become a member, visit amps.net.
0: Yeah, AMPS will also be at the BSC Expo at the end of this month. Um, so if you feel like meeting some AMPS members in person, whether you're part of AMPS or just interested in it, uh, we'll be there. It's the 31st and the 1st of February down at the Battersea Evolution Centre.
1: Yeah, and we have regular social events in the UK, particularly in uh, London, Manchester and Bristol. And non-members are always welcome. And if you're in the Bristol area and you've up, we can guarantee that Andrew Wilson will buy you a pint.
0: Definitely. <laughs> All right, thanks very much. Ta-da.